0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and uh, welcome to the New Books Network, Science, Technology, and Society Podcast. Today we're here with Jamie Susskind. Uh, Jamie Susskind is the author of the new book, The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century. Jamie Susskind is recognized as one of the leading intellectuals of the digital age. He has advised governments around the world with qualifications in law, history, and politics. He's a graduate of the University of Oxford and has held fellowships at Harvard and Cambridge. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Times, The New Statement, Wired, and elsewhere. His previous book, Future Politics, from 2018, was a bestseller and received a Distinguished Book Prize. So, Jamie, uh, good morning and good afternoon to you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Great. So I'd like to start off by asking kind of where this book project came from. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure your, your, your current situation, kind of academic job or non-academic job. And so what, what drove you to writing this book?
1: Well, I live a kind of double life. By day, I practice law. I'm a barrister, uh, which in England are the, the, the lawyers who speak in court and we're the ones who wear the wigs and the gowns. Um, but by night, I write books about political theory and law and technology And that's been a passion of mine since I was an undergraduate. When I was an undergraduate, I studied history and politics, in particular political philosophy. And I was struck then that even though the world around us was changing, obviously and profoundly, uh, you know, this was around the time that social media platforms were exploding, the time that we first started started getting smartphones, the textbooks which we were studying all about society and its structures had very little to say about this they were from a previous generation arguably a previous world and it frustrated me that we would study power and freedom and democracy but without any reference to the internet to artificial intelligence technologies to social media to ubiquitous internet of things and the like so Uh, From then onwards, I I thought that there was a job to be done in trying to update our political philosophy, update our language, our vocabulary, our ideas, to make sure that we were ready for the world that we are moving into. Because my great concern as an author uh, is that we are not ready. We're not ready politically, we're not ready legally, and we're certainly not ready intellectually for the great technological transformations that are going to take place in our lifetimes.
0: I see. So what's interesting, I think about, about this book is at least when you start uh, you know, you, you have also this double life in the book as well, right? I mean, you have this section about political theory where you're trying to paint what Republicanism, which in a second, we should maybe bookend and, and be clear about what we mean by that term. Um, you know, where you're trying to bookend a theory of republicanism, and in the second half of the book, you're proposing some kind of, you know, concrete recommendations of what can be done. Um, I think that it might be great to talk maybe a little bit about this political theory that, that you're kind of developing and, and pointing out that we need or have a need for.
1: Right. So the, the book is about essentially what the challenges of digital technology are and what we can do about it it tries to be a constructive book so a lot of the books about this topic are 12 chapters about how terrible things are and then the 13th chapter which has some vague ideas in it uh, but which says you know we need to think more about this this is my effort to think more about this and what that means is that it can't be monodisciplinary right so you can't just write a book of political theory You also can't just write a book as a technologist or an engineer or a computer scientist, nor can you just write a book from the perspective of a lawyer, because lawyers are very good at describing what is, but not necessarily at describing what ought to be. And so the book tries to combine a number of disciplines. Um, My background is in history and politics, but I practice law now and um, I've held fellowships and the like in technological institutes uh, too. But really, what gives me the ability to write in the way that I do is that I'm not a, a traditional academic, although, although I hold I've held fellowships at Harvard and at Cambridge University. Um, I, I don't My work doesn't have to and doesn't slot into a particular curriculum or anything like that, um, and I think that that helps me. So you mentioned the philosophy of republicanism, and obviously the book is called The Digital Republic. I think it's really important for me to be clear with your readers, uh, your listeners, forgive me, from the outset that the republicanism that I describe in the book is not the republicanism, the capital R republicanism of the modern Republican Party. That's not what this book is about, uh, nor is it really the republicanism of executing kings and queens or the republicanism Mm -hmm. of the IRA. But obviously what all of these republicanisms with capital R's have in common, is that they have arisen out of the much older uh, philosophy of small r republicanism, which can be traced as far back to the Roman Empire, uh, well, before the Roman Empire, uh, the Roman Republic, and through history since then, and Republican ideas have cropped up again and again at history, often at times of great upheaval. So the, the writing of constitutions, times of revolution, times of war, times of great change. The American framers considered themselves Republicans. Uh, revolutionaries in France given that considered themselves Republicans. But really, when I describe republicanism, what I'm trying to distill from this ancient philosophy is a, se- is a series of key precepts that can help us understand technology and the challenges it poses. And in particular, what republicanism philosophy In particular, what Republican philosophy teaches is that it is a problem in society to have imbalances of power where the powerful party isn't accountable for the power that they hold. Republicans have one word for this, domination, but you can also just call it unaccountable power. And the key thing about Republicanism is that it's opposed to unaccountable power even when we like what's currently being done with the, that power. So in the past, there were lots of people who would say, oh, you know, yes, we may live in a, uh, with, a with an absolute monarch, but at least the, the king is governing wisely. But the Republicans were opposed to the very idea of kingship, not just bad kings. And likewise, you know, Republicans argued for workplace rights, not just better bosses. They hoped they argued and militated for tenants' rights, not just wiser landlords. They argued for women to have rights, not just for kinder husbands. They argued not for better slave masters or better conditions of slavery, but for the abolition of the institution of slavery altogether. And I've taken this philosophy and tried to kind of adapt it for the modern age. And the lesson I think is pretty clear. The problem isn't with Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. Indeed, when we spend all of our time trying to critique and understand those particular individuals, we miss the broader problem, which is the idea of Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, the idea that certain people in society increasingly hold enormous amounts of power in their hands, and that power is unaccountable. And so the Republican, small r, philosophy that I advance in the book and the policies and laws and regulations that I suggest all flow from this desire to make sure that we live in a world where we don't have to rely on the goodwill or the wisdom of people with power but we hold them to check we hold them to account
0: right and 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 this notion of republicanism is a non-domination you i you hear often i think at least in in kind of academic circles um the debate plan out around china sometimes right this idea of you know well on the one hand you hear accounts that are you know benevolent that you know might say yes it's you know Uh, a dominating ruling party, but, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's acceptable because it has good outcomes. And, and so in this book, I, I, I've really enjoyed how you lay out this idea of non-domination as being irrespective of the outcomes in some sense, right? I mean, your, your argument is, is unaccountable power is a problem irrespective of, you know, the goodwill that that maybe technology that you might get to might have in the present form? or
1: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. I mean, let me be clear. I mean, there are two arguments here. One is a kind of practical argument. Republicanism does believe that over time, unaccountable power is a kind of cancer that will destroy or at least seriously harm society. So yes, if you live under a benevolent dictator, there will be periods or there may be periods of wise governing but there will also be periods of terror and famine and horror and death and the republican philosophy says that you know in the long run it's better to hold power accountable but you are right there is also this kind of intransigent indignant part of republicanism which says that actually yeah i don't want to live under an authoritarian regime even if it makes the economy grow a little faster because it is it is uh, because i live in a state of unfreedom when I don't have a say in the laws that govern my life. And that state of unfreedom is undesirable, irrespective of what the policy outcomes from it may be. So it's good to be clear about both of those arguments in favor of Republican political philosophy.
0: And so you contrast this with um, this idea in the book of, of, I, I think what you describe as kind of maybe the current state of affairs and at least technology regulation as market individualism. Could you say a little bit more about what, what you mean by market individualism and, and maybe contrast this with uh, republicanism?
1: So one of the questions I ask in the book is, how, how did we get here? How did we get to a place where, uh, you know, just to lay it out for your listeners, technologies are growing more and more powerful. But instead of making our democracy stronger, they often seem to be making it weaker. Instead of making us more free, they often seem to be making us less free. And given, you know, I believe in the awesome power of technology to improve human civilization, this is undesirable. And so I ask, how did we get here? And the answer that I reach is that the real issue isn't the Elon Musk's and the Mark Zuckerberg's of the world or even particular corporations. It's that we've allowed technology to develop according to a set of governing ideas that are not necessarily always consistent with democracy or with freedom. And those ideas, I say, tend to be market individualist ideas. The market individualist, at their heart, believes that social advance comes through essentially individuals and corporations pursuing their own interests and interacting with each other in a manner that's more like bargaining, and occasional cooperation, but generally competition, uh, that the market system will generally lead us to a desirable equilibrium. Because if companies and the like don't give people what they want, uh, then they will go bust. In the book, I try to explode this argument. I try to show that actually market forces encourage bad behavior as much as good behavior, that the benefits of markets like competition are often not present where you have things like network effects and monopolies i try to argue that sometimes you need a level playing field through regulation in order to let new entrants enter the market or to or to stop bad behavior whether it's a discriminatory algorithm uh, or a predatory piece of targeting or whatever it might be and you know the thing that i really go to town on is the fact that it's not just that we have developed technology according to market individualism you know in the in the capitalist market because in a sense that's that's not necessarily a, a, an undesirable thing the market unleashes enormous creative and innovative power but what's fascinating to me is that we've also tried to regulate technology using the market individualist philosophy and the best example of this is those things that you click consenting to this or that when you interact with digital technology which if you really take a step back and think about it is completely farcical no one reads it those who read it don't understand it those who understand it find that what these systems do isn't or these contracts do or these consents is they don't redistribute power between tech firms and individuals they cement it they give the companies more rights to do things Uh, with your data or to do things vis-a-vis your privacy that they might not even have had before and so our first line of defense and sometimes our last line of defense against the awesome power of digital technology is a kind of quasi-contractual individualist system which doesn't protect us at all and the real issue is that we are being left as individuals to fend for ourselves which sounds noble, you know, people speak of autonomy and the dignity of the individual, right? And quite often I speak at conferences and people come up to you and say, what can I do? But some of the problems thrown up by digital technology are not things that we can or should be expected to tackle on our own. They are bigger than us. They are social problems. They damage the fabric of society, not just our individual rights and interests. And so I try to get away from this whole individualist school of thought. And, uh, onto not just a new set of laws and policies, but a totally new way of thinking. I say new, but actually Republican ideas, as I've tried to say, are are very much a part of Western civilization. And it's just that they're quite often well hidden.
0: Right. And I and I think I mean for especially for listeners, I mean in a common doubt that I hear, at least when I'm talking about kind of science and technology regulation and in particular some of the issues with say like online media and algorithms. One kind of uh, dissident in the audience typically brings up and says, oh, well, you know, me as an individual, I could choose to simply not engage." or, you know, you get this kind of individualist argument of somehow the woes of Twitter or Facebook or the public sphere in some sense is maybe we could talk more about in a minute. you know, I as an individual can somehow step away from this and I just just not use them. But I, what I liked about your critique of market individualism is is exactly as you said, that it's it's not about these individuals against each other, because really there's some kind of social phenomenon, some bigger force that power is resting in. And it's not, you know, no individual has the control over it.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I would add that Market individualism often permeates even well-meaning attempts to rein in tech. Take a a, a, a typical example. You quite often hear people saying we need a new Internet Bill of Rights. We need to give people more online rights. But individual rights aren't always a good way of holding power to account. So let's, let's just say hypothetically that a particular technology was damaging democracy. It was lowering the quality of deliberation, it was lowering social trust, it was lowering participation, it was increasing the risk of a lapse into autocracy. So it's a bad thing for society, or at least for a democratic society. It seems to me unlikely that that erosion of democratic quality is going to be recognisable in a legal right. So, you know, if I said to you, you know, how much damage has this caused you? How much harm has this caused you individually? Quantify it. What's your claim for? You'd struggle to say, because it's actually not really about us as individuals. E- only each of us as individuals only suffer slightly, but it's society as a whole that's profoundly damaged. So just talking about bills of rights and things like that, that's the market individualist mindset. Again, give individuals more rights. But actually, sometimes you need things like societal standards. That are enforced by regulators collectively rather than expecting individuals always to stick up for themselves
0: yes that's a wonderful example i mean i think that's kind of a classic example that you hear in like human rights philosophy is um is is especially when you talk about something like democracy you know there's a huge debate kind of in, in human rights philosophy about whether or not that could even be considered a human right only because of this individual idea which is to say well we know that genocide is egregious harm to an individual, but is not having democracy to that level of a severe harm for that individual to have a right to it. And, and I, it's, it's interesting how uh, bringing this back to technology today, how, you know, we're talking on our computers here through the internet and none of us have any idea how this is really working. And, you know, I, I guess I have a PhD in computer science and I still don't really (laughs) quite, quite even be able to grasp the whole picture myself. So, when we're thinking about um, regulation and these types of things, what do you think that the role of democracy might be in, in trying to handle this? Maybe I'm shifting us a little bit more towards uh, the second half of your book, where we talk a little bit about um, some of the ideas that you have about what the law can do for democracy, and in particular, how this might bear on technology.
1: Well, it's a big question, and I'll see if I can try and break it down. What does the, what the Republican small-r philosophy say that the point of regulation is vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis democracy? I think there are probably two strands to it. One is we want to be introducing laws and regulations and measures which improve the quality of democracy. Sounds really basic, but th- that is a public policy aim. And when we regulate technology, it, it can and should be an aim that we have in mind. The second is more subtle and it's that when we have powerful technologies we want them in some respect to reflect the norms and values of the society the democratic society in which they exist and so that means what you shouldn't have is you know new technologies undermining laws which are well settled simply because they can So, for example, if you have a if society decides that you shouldn't be able to discriminate on the basis of certain characteristics and has a set of laws geared towards that purpose. If you then introduce an algorithmic system that's distributing a mortgage or a job or a or housing or loans or, or or credit or insurance. And that algorithm does discriminate or does something like discrimination, akin to discrimination. It might well be that the existing legal system can't detect or adequately encompass that kind of discrimination. Literally just things like the rules of disclosure and a legal process or the legal test for discrimination might be might be cast in humanoid terms. And what you have there is, you know, society's agreed on a set of norms and values and a technology cut just comes along and just 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 goes round them and subverts them. Um, That's the sort of negative aspect to that second limb. Technology shouldn't be allowed to undermine the settled norms and values of a society. But there's also an argument that they should positively reflect certain norms and values as well. And, um, you know, two, two examples come to mind. One is... If you have social media in your country, then probably those social media platforms should be governed by laws which reflect your country's approach to freedom of speech, right? So France, Germany, the United Kingdom, America, they're all democracies. They all have very different approaches to freedom of speech. And it doesn't seem to me right that someone in America should have should ever have to live by a French norm, or certainly not that someone in the UK should have to live by an American norm. That's unrepublican. It it means you are you're being subject to norms and things that are outside of your control. A sort of second example I sometimes think of, and, and this is where I know I come across as quite radical, is there are looser principles that we have about injustice and you know equality. And I, I think back to something like the Google algorithm that used to auto, what well, it still does, it auto-completes your search inquiries. And there used to be this problem with the Google algorithm or the Google system, which is when you type in something, it would it would sometimes give you offensive results. So you type in "why do Jews," and it would finish your sentence with "have big noses," or you know, "control the world's media," or "love money so much." And what Google would say is, "Well, listen, that just that just reflects searches that people have actually done. You know, we're not we're not telling it to." to I mean, this is obvious. We're not telling it to say these things. It's just that the algorithm tries to generate results that we think people will find useful based on what other people have found useful. But there's a good example of where you have a a technological system that's essentially amplifying and reproducing an injustice that already exists in the world. And I don't accept that as an inevitable and necessary consequence of using digital technologies. In the same way that, you know, you get those speech systems, those machine learning systems where, you know, they're taught word games based on massive data sets from the internet of language. But, you know, they say misogynistic things or racist things. So if you say to it, man is to doctor as woman is to, it will say nurse. Man is to architect as woman is to interior designer. And again, you know, they would say, well, you know, it just neutrally reflects the words that are out there. I'm more ambitious than that. I, I think if we have values... Then there's no reason why we can't at some times try to engineer our technologies in a way that reflects those values. You know, an algorithm that reduces the injustice in the world rather than amplifying it. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
0: Well, here's just to push maybe on this a little bit further, right? right. You know, so I, I, you know, I agree kind of with this, with the idea in some sense that technology reflects the people who interact with it, right? There's numerous cases of this. You could think of the Amazon, the classic Amazon hiring algorithm, where the algorithm basically rejected all females. Well, why? Well, because it was only men who were really working there in the first place. I mean, that was their, that was their trading data set, right? So the algorithm reflected what was actually happening. And of course we we as, I mean, kind of liberal academics in some sense, you know, look at this and say, this is not reflective of our values, but I have this kind of always lingering question of, you know, how do we des- how do we decide these values? And, and maybe this is where we're going, right? The point might be is, well, then you have something like Google as this kind of washed over, you know, nebulous thing out there. That's dominating everyone in a particular way with a particular set of values. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, you know, my, my, my question is, you know, how do you actually deal with the, well, whose values get put where, right? Especially I think of America, I mean, think of American politics, right? I mean, it's unclear, like what, <laughs> what are those values?
1: It is it is such an important and good question. And I'm really glad you've asked it. And, you know, I think there probably is an answer to it, which goes something like this. It's easy to talk about, you know, our shared norms and our shared values, but as as you say, First of all, not everyone agrees in a society on their norms and values, but also the same person might not act consistently with what they say their own norms and values are. You know, we all know lots of men who call themselves feminists but won't act in a feminist way. So we are, we're all creatures of kind of contradiction and society is complex and multifaceted. And what you're saying is, or suggesting is, well, you know, in those circumstances, how on earth are we (laughs) choosing how to engineer a Google algorithm According to to whose values, and I think the answer that politics gives, or, or or the political theory gives, or at least the answer that I'm going to give, is it when we do politics, when we when we when we do politics, when we try to introduce policies and introduce laws, we do take a decision to try and be a particular type of ourselves, right? And the Republican small r says the The type of yourself that you should try to be is civic minded. So you shouldn't just be looking out for yourself, looking for the common good, you know, and looking for compromise and shared values rather than just you know winning. Uh, looking for deliberation and listening to other people and not just yourself. These are normative values. I accept. Not everyone will agree with them. I, I I think they're the right values, but they're kind of meta values in a way, in the sense that they they teach you how to get to decisions rather than embodying decisions in themselves. But, you know, in politics and law, we try to move the world from our kind of scummy natural nature to a slightly better world by passing laws that incentivize us to behave in a in what that society at that time considers to be a better way. And that's why we have a criminal justice system. It's like saying, you know, well, murder's wrong, but people do murder each other all the time. But, the, you know, but what we do is we pass laws to try and kind of encourage us to be a higher version of ourselves, to, to, not, to, not, to not do things that are wrong. Um, I mean, it's really easy to tie yourself in philosophical kind of donuts around this stuff, but I, I, the, the, the view I take is that technology is inherently political. So whatever Google does with its algorithm, whatever a big tech company that's running a platform does in its choices about what content to amplify and what to stifle, they may think they're being neutral, but they're always applying some kind of value system, some kind of priority, some kind of prejudice even. There's no escaping it. And the reason there's no escaping it is because they, they wield power. And when you wield power, you can't use it in a, an unpolitical way. It's always going to be political. And once you recognize that and make peace with it, then you realize that we should govern technology as if it is a political phenomenon. And that means sometimes passing laws and policies that take us from the world that is to the world that we would like it to be.
0: And and just to bring this to something concrete, I mean, in, in, in legal theory, there's there's tons of precedents of this kind of thing. I mean, in America, you have classic cases that are examples of this kind of moving the world from one place to another, even in you know, strong disagreement, like, you know, Brown versus board, um, in Australia, you have, you know, human rights cases that that were great examples for gay rights in some of the smaller States where steps are taken just in the kind of greater good. And there's these kind of, you know, stretches or, or leaps or shifts in some sense. And, and, um, uh, so, so, I mean, I, I don't think it's just kind of a philosophical thing, you know, too, is your, you know, it's, it's, maybe it, it might've just seemed, um, so I'm 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 curious then and maybe if we wanted to talk quickly just about one of the kind of con- like like what's something that you know if if you were going to go to Congress uh, and if you had a captive audience you know what what is something that you see kind of in the short term that individuals even though we just talked about how individuals can do maybe too much <laughs> that at least individuals maybe collectively could um, could could think through as as something actionable in policy.
1: Yeah. So I'm not going to say what we can and should do as individuals, because I think I think we've and there are loads of good books doing that. But I think ultimately these are things that we can only tackle collectively, um, as I think you, you knew I was going to say. Um, <laughs> well, listen, as as you know, the, the book has the book suggests loads of laws. Right. And and it, it, it you know, the laws that are going to govern algorithms and the use of data and the use of social media and robotics and crypto, whatever it is, they're going to be different. Uh, depending on the context, albeit that the same overriding goal is there, the goal of having a society with less domination in it. Um, I can give you one example of a set of policies that I advocate regarding social media, because I know that that is a, an area of governance that people really worry about and also kind of think is intractable. Um, I, I'm, I'm mindful that there are, what I'm about to suggest might might seem... Uh, heretical to some First Amendment scholars. Um, I'm reasonably relaxed about that because it seems to me that in the last 150 years, people have taken very different views on what the First Amendment requires. Uh, I acknowledge there is a particular doctrine just now, which is extremely cautious of government intervention. But whatever, I'll put that to one side for a second. If, I, if we were designing a, a, a system of social media regulation, I would say it, ha- it, would ha- it should have these qualities. We don't want the state meddling, the government meddling in individual decisions about content moderation. That's that's a risk for free speech and the like, and it's also just inefficient and impractical. We also have to recognise that social media platforms, when they're when they're governing themselves at the scale at which they operate, they're going to make mistakes. So if you're if, if there are billions of pieces of content every week on your platform, thousands, hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of things are going to escape your sites. So, principle number one, the, when we're governing social media, we shouldn't be trying to make it perfect. You should never try to make anything perfect in the realm of speech, but you, you can try to reduce the risk of harm uh, and you can try to increase the risk of benefit, uh, increase the chance of benefit. Secondly, we should govern at the structural or systemic level. So, what a platform, a major platform, should have to show is that it has adequate or reasonable or proportionate systems in place to address a particular need that has been set by parliament or by Congress. So that need might be the reduction of harmful medical misinformation. It might be the reduction of foreign intervention in the democratic process. Uh, It might be the reduction of the prevalence of child pornography, whatever it is going to be. Society sets the aims through politics. And then it is for the platforms to work out on their systems how best to create reasonable or adequate or proportionate systems to meet that aim. And if they do meet that aim, then there should be a degree of insulation from liability. So you shouldn't, platforms should be immune from being sued from the content that is post, posted on their platforms, but only to the extent and only if they have showed that their systems are generally compliant. Final principle, the same levels of compliance shouldn't apply to all platforms. Some are clearly massive and important and systemic. Some are small and very, very dangerous. Others are small and insignificant. And there's just no reason why your local kind of knitting chat room should have the same regulations as Facebook should. And so the kind of first stage in any program of regulation is to create a a kind of category categorization system for risk. So that's just me kind of sketching out what I think a decent system would look like. You have categories of risk, which you assign to different platforms. You then require them to have, you then choose your priorities and then you require them to have adequate systems in place. And those priorities should be with not the seeking of perfection, but just the reduction of risk or the increase in the possibility of benefit and gain.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a really novel idea in some sense of, the, of, of thinking more carefully about kind of the categories of different types of actors on online platforms and not kind of treating all online platforms as one. You know, an article comes to mind from Habermas in a German newspaper a few years ago where he wrote about social media. And he said something like, uh, you know, now, now on social media, everyone's an author, right? It used to be just authors were kind of authors, right? But now anyone can be an author and anyone can share content. But, you know, when you look online at social media and you look at the harms, you know, that's, you know, the, the individual per se is making their posts or whatever is not really causing, you know, major harms, right? I mean, you have influencers, you have particular types of people who take on certain roles in sharing information. You think of, you know, podcasters, I guess me right now, I suppose, right? <laughs> are taking on certain certain roles online that that might require different categories even of, of thinking about, you know, what kind of actor they are and. And I, and I think that's a, yeah. a, a definitely new idea.
1: I mean, I, there is this. there was this, um, it's part, I think it's kind of a generational thing. I, I think people who were really used to studying the broadcast and mass media of the 20th century, what struck them as the most interesting thing about social media was this idea that everyone's an author, you know, it's the end of journalism because everyone's a blogger. It's a very naughty idea um, and it achieved great popularity uh, let me say, among a, a particular kind of generation of scholars, and it's not wrong, um, but in many ways what it's turned out is the more interesting and important communicative function is not the production of information, so it's not the individuals pre- like saying things, tweeting, but the ability to filter, the ability to curate, the ability to algorithmically promote or deny, the ability to specify how things may be said, no more than 280 characters uh, or who may say them. So this the, the, initial, the initial analysis that oh everyone's an author now, let, let the platform say we're not the author. We're just here to kind of publish. But what it's turned out is that the really powerful role in society ten, turns out to be standing put, placing yourself as the platforms do between individuals and between individuals and the world's information. And that ability to frame our perception of each other and of the world turns out to be a massively more interesting and I think more socially significant thing than the fact that you and I can both do a tweet or a blog. What's much more important is that is the rules by which that blog or tweet will achieve or not achieve prominence, uh, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Well, th- Let's end on this note. Uh, you know, Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I guess my last question briefly would be, I mean, what are you working on next?
1: <laughs> it's funny, actually, given this conversation. Um, I, I only recently finished writing this book, and so I'm in my kind of I'll never do it again phase. Um, but I do have this just kind of itch at the back of my mind. What I would love to write, uh, and I'm not even sure if I should be publicly announcing this, uh, I, I... I would like to write a, sh- a short, a genuinely short book about free speech in the 21st century. So what free speech is, why people think it's important, why people think it sometimes needs to be restricted, how those arguments have been changed and distorted as a result of digital technology, and what might a, might a sensible free speech approach look like in the future. The reason I think that matters is that I think that the generations are, are talking across each other just now. And, you know, all of this hysterical stuff about cancel culture on the one hand, but also that also the fact that actually our generation, I'm, I'm putting you and I in the same, recognizes that that there are types of speech which actually 30 years ago, you could just laugh off as being peripheral and fringe. But, but now can be spread to f- millions of people within seconds. And so the kind of algorithmic balance that we strike in our, in our morality about when we have to restrict speech, I think has probably changed. Um, anyway, that's a short answer to your question. I think maybe over the next couple of years, I'd love to produce something like that.
0: All right. Well, well, we'll certainly be looking out for, for, for anything and uh, um, all, all new work. So we've been talking with Jamie, uh, Jamie Suskin, the author of The Digital Republic on Freedom and Democracy in the 21st Century from Pegasus Books. And it just came out uh, three days ago. So go out and uh, take a look. And the book was a joy to read, especially for those who, who like some theory still and an in the, in the increasingly world full of facts. So Jamie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much.